You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Nordics podcast, bringing together the best technical leaders to talk about the industry, passions and challenges that they're facing. I'm Abby Stokes. I help businesses connect with tech talent and I'm your host for today's episode. Today, I'm joined by Werner van Gent, Noor Kashiri, Johan Bolin and Amina Demian to discuss how do we create cross-functional teams. Before we kick off into the topic further, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. So Werner, would you like to kick us off, please? Yeah, so my name is Werner van Gent, originally from South Africa, now residing in Sweden. I am an engineering manager working at Klarna. And we deal primarily with the Clona.com website. So, yeah, that is me. Lovely. Noel? Hi, I'm Noel. Um, I'm a senior product manager for uh, Betson. Uh, we're a gaming company and we have around 2,000 people uh, across the globe offering gaming um, um, experiences around the world. Lovely, fantastic. Um, Johan? Mm-hmm. Johan Bolin, I'm the Chief Technology Officer for a company called Agile Content uh, and we are a Spanish-Swedish company, so we have, it's a Spanish company legally, but we have a large part of our R&D in, in Sweden since Agile Content acquired Edgeware a couple of years ago. Uh, and uh, prior to this role, I have also been heading up R&D and I've been heading up product and so on, so I have uh, experience from managing different kind of functions uh, in a development organization. Fantastic. And last but not least, Mina. Hi, my name is Mina Demian. I'm a software engineer. I work at a company called Conside. I'm a, I'm a front-end developer right now and I'm consulting. Uh, and Conside is a large Swedish consulting company. Lovely, fantastic. So now that we've got a, a little bit of context to each of you, we'll move on to the topic in focus. You have all pre- prepared a question on how do we create cross-functional teams. And as usual, we'll work our way around the room where you can each ask your questions and give your thoughts on the others as well. So first to kick us off is you, Mina, and you asked what are the characteristics of a good cross-functional team? So tell us a bit more about that question um, and then we'll kick off into the discussion. Sure. Um, well, thank you once again for having me on. Uh, yeah, my my the way I was thinking about this question was uh, sometimes you know like uh, they say the best way to start a discussion is to define your terms. So that's really how I was thinking. You know, let's 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 first think about like what makes a good team. What are the good characteristics? Um, I've worked at a couple of places. Um, I'd say look. The second half of my career, which have been more what you would call today a cross-functional team, and what I can offer, uh, and I really want to hear what everybody else has to say, um, I think it's when there's a good mix of personalities and um, maybe not necessarily the amount of years experience, but just like people's experiences, let's call it general experience, like just like learning how to work with others and working at different companies. Cause sometimes, you know, seniority or years of actual technical experience can, it might not be that important. Um, but I think, yeah, personalities and backgrounds and then just temperaments, I think is maybe the, well, maybe one of the first characteristics I'd say. Yeah, I think it, yeah, go for it. Yeah, well, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, as much as we we all want kind of good technical experience and good experience in in general, whether 
since we're talking about cross-functional, I mean, it's not just technical, it's other, other aspects as well. I think that those sometimes actually come secondary. I, I, I found that a lot of the times, if there's a good mixture of personalities and these these people learn to get along or they they are more or less in the same same kind of vertical that they tend to collaborate a lot a lot better with each other as well and i think that's what for me also one of the key things is as long as there's good collaboration that that kind of disparity between what we call a senior and uh, and maybe an intermediate type of person that gap becomes less because it gets made up since they're collaborating as well but you need those personalities to actually reinforce each other and not break each other down for that to happen yeah i i think there is a bit of a um, this applies not just for um, for development but also in design uh, the like a general sense of or a similar sense of what good taste or what a good result means um <clears throat> that kind of everyone's kind of can see or have a good sense of how how does success look like and, and i tend to use the um, band metaphor as in musicians because a drummer and a guitarist play very different instruments but the song is the same um even though they seem to be very different could be different ages could be different cultures it doesn't matter point being it's one song made from different things so what makes that work so again they are producing the same thing ultimately they, they have the same goal so i think once uh, the characteristics I, characteristics would be like the ability of everyone to visualize where they're going and they, to care about where they're going now different experiences different skills you might you will have disagreements awesome so something else i think honesty between the team members yeah just thinking what i could add i think um, my experience is also that what kind of roles and what kind of personalities you want to have in the team depends a little bit on which phase the product if you think about like a product company you have products that are in different phases and so on and it also depends which phase a product is in, which complicates actually organizational theory here because it means that in an early phase of a project or a product you want to have a certain kind of personalities and competences in that team but in the later stage, actually, maybe another kind of team setup is is better at doing that because the guys who are really good at coming up with new ideas and taking the right shortcuts and so on, excellent in the beginning. They might be a complete disaster if it's a mature product and you're trying where you're trying to phase out or to to just maintain and so on. So, so this is a I I think a complexity in how to build team is that it's it, you tend to think that you build a team when you start something up because that's when you have the team kind of when you set the team uh, and sometimes the parameters you have when you set something up is not the same parameters you would optimize for later so, so it also depends on, on that uh, i think i think that's a really good point and again i'm gonna go back to um i, I remember this situation where i was getting frustrated at um, at, at my drummer for um, not understanding what the project plan is and then my friend, uh, the guitarist, reminded me that he's a postman, and postmen don't understand do project plans. Point B: um, If you you need to kind of calibrate your expectations, like you said, I mean, some people are good at doing something, some people are good at doing other things. So I think 
combining these people um, in the right way. Yeah, I think it's it's a very very good um, good point. Definitely, I mean, we've seen this especially in not so much in other uh, in other disciplines, but definitely in software development. You've you've got the guys that they're really fired up when the project starts, and then when it gets to like ninety percent complete, those guys drop off, and then. They, you need that extra, you need those finishes at the end of the day that go into the detail and do the last kind of touches, dots the I's, crosses the T's. So, yeah, I think that's a development specific thing, not necessarily quite cross-functional, but definitely something that we've we've seen multiple times over. If I may yeah. also, uh, sorry, I mean, go for it, go for it, go for it. No, no, go ahead. No, I was thinking that um, even like what you say and when you say it, and to who? Like, if someone is on the ground, most of the times is looking at things around them. So they will see far away, maybe just to know that they're going mm. in a particular direction. But if you're planning and you're not sure about planning, you don't want to kind of deviate the, the, the team too much. So um, the cross-functionality also comes in the sense of like um, from different levels of management and how they communicate and all this. Like I was having a chat with with my, my, my person I report to like, and thinking about plans, like when should we get this information to the people and how should we transform this information that makes sense for the team so that they can actually work um, towards somewhere rather than getting confused. So it's it's quite interesting, um, even communication, how it goes and gets transposed. Uh, yeah, I, I really like the, the the direction we took because I, I, I wasn't expecting it. I've actually never thought about um, the fact that you need different types of skills and different types of people, different phases of a project, but that's really true um, because uh, I lost my train of thought, but what I wanted to say was um, I, I find it really interesting because it's something that I have not thought about before, maybe because I've, I've, you know, in my own, in my own experience, I've always thought of a project being linear, you know, it's kind of linear and it's static and, it, you know, the same people are always going to be around and it's pretty much the same thing, but I, I do find it. And I, I think from a, when I look back at some of the projects I've been a part of that have been successful, you know, it's like maybe the maybe the team hasn't changed, like the people haven't changed, but maybe the the key players, if we can call it that, change over time. Like people who were maybe more vocal in the beginning have become less vocal, and then people who are maybe more quiet in the beginning, kind of, you know, they they took they took up more space at the end because they got stuff done. So I, I just wanted to say I really like that. I, I like the the way that we focus the discussion. Lovely. Any other final thoughts? No, nice. So Noel, we're going to come to you next. Um, and you asked what kind of projects does an engineer get to work on? Um, so tell us a bit more behind your context of that question. Yes. Again, it comes from where I work with right now. Um, I've been uh, with Betson for around eight months now. And um, there's a lot of different teams, a lot of different departments. There is, since it's a national, there's commercial kind of thing, the globalization of things. Um, and, and we have also events, like I think all other industries would have events. In our case, it could be like um, sports events, whatever, that will generate peaks or whatever. So there, but there is a lot of initiatives coming in. And the thing is like, <clears throat> how do you um, kind of align these things, these different projects, different needs, so that the team or teams know what their prioritization is, um, can feel that they can actually have enough uh, focus time to work and to produce something of value for themselves and for the organization. So this is where I'm coming from. 
Yeah. I think this is a really great question. It's something that I'm I'm uh, I'm kind of in right now. Uh, I've just joined a new project. I'm working at a government agency here in, in Stockholm, and um, I'm you know from my own experience, I've always even when I've worked at companies that were you know very modern and kind of flat in terms of the organization, but there was always an expectation on my side that you know priority prioritization comes from somebody, whether it's from top or from a manager, it doesn't really matter. But this is the first time in my career where like they're saying, yeah, you guys, we kind of have these priorities, but now you get to kind of decide what you work on. And for me, I've often been like, oh, really? But I don't know, <laughs> you know, I'm not really sure. You know, I'm, I'm still really new here, but I, uh, I, I think just to kind of, I just want to give some context there, but what I see is that um, it's a little difficult sometimes for a team, even if the team has like a lot of experience, you know, they've been on projects, they've worked on big projects and they've worked, worked well together. I think I just say, and, and I, I'd like somebody to disagree with me, I, I'd say that it's hard for a team to always or be a com the complete owner, the total owner of priorities. I think it has to come, there has to be some out, it has to be some input um because you know even if a team is really good at doing all everything that they do you know a team is still kind of focused on their own context you know they don't see the big picture the big picture will come from a, you know a, a manager or a, a team lead or something so yeah so maybe yeah i just wanted to throw that out there. I, I, I go for it uh when... the, just to, to kind of touch on that as well because it's a situation of we perform primarily in marketing functions. So it's also one of those things that, that especially this time of year, there's a lot of these new campaigns and things coming in. So we've got a lot of prioritization from kind of stakeholders to work on these, these various projects. Some of them obviously have overlap, which is, which is great. But like you said as well, that there's always in certain aspects an external stakeholder that, that can provide that, that kind of prioritization at least. Um, obviously, the more reusable you can make these, the more of these kind of projects developers can touch on in a, in, a, in a given time, kind of breaking them up and so. But at the end of the day, that is also determined by the prioritization from stakeholder side as well. It's like, how modular can we make this? Or is this something that we just need to push out at the speed of light because there's such a huge time pressure? Because let's face it when when there's something that comes in that's high that's high on priority you can't let the team kind of decide that prioritization there has to be somebody that basically says yeah look this is now priority we need to push this forward but i mean we can still keep those things in mind kind of the reusability because i mean everything these days modular all of that we can plug and play things so the longer we obviously have, the better we can do those things. The more projects we uh, we can do in a shorter a shorter space of time. But like you said, stakeholders need to be to kind of drive that as well. And that being said, is that I think that external pressure from stakeholders is sometimes a very positive thing as well because it adds that urgency. Because there's a lot of times where it there's no prioritization kind of put on a task, so that gives it this indefinite timeline that it can take. Yeah, uh, yeah, I wanted to make a small comment on this. Um, 
because what we what we do like because okay this is my layer i'm a product manager so in in in, in i by, by the way i work in infrastructure uh which usually is a big spender and not a money maker um and that's a bit of a, a tricky situation to be in uh, nonetheless the kind of the kind of product manager layer in, in our case is one of the main things that they we do is prioritization but um, what we are trying to do, uh, it's not perfect, but I think it's 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 a kind of a, a good uh, win-win. We kind of say like, all right, let's say three. We have a three-year strategy which kind of shows us where we want to go. We would have like let's say a, a, a roadmap for a year, which is kind of higher level objective based and what success would look like for a particular product. But then we let the team define their own way how to arrive at those outcomes as long as we help them understand what success would look like and stop them from going too deep into rabbit holes. Uh, because I was a technical person and when I have a solution, whoop, I try to, and it's natural. It's that's what we do, what engineers do. So that kind of uh, multi-layered, let's say, level of prioritizations and checkups, continuously checkups, like like uh, Werner said with, with your stakeholders, it's a reality check. And stakeholders many times don't even know exactly what they want. Nobody does. <laughs> I, I still want to meet the stakeholder that comes to you and says, okay, cool. I want this and that is where it stays. And, and scope creep just... Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I've I've never gone into a project where there hasn't been some manner of scope creep. And that's, I think, one of the things is that prioritization from the stakeholders is good for two reasons. It's it's to make sure that they know what to compromise because they inevitably are going to change their mind. So it's like you have to get where that minimum level is, right? Mm -hmm. Where are they? Where where are you willing to go, and where is the stakeholder willing to accept? And that's a balancing act. I think there's a there's another level of complexity here um, that I've seen uh, recently is when you are not only you know you're not only like um, so, so it's when you're a team, not just working on, let's say, multiple tasks within one project or with one product. It's when you are, like in my case right now, you're one team and you're working on multiple products with multiple product owners. And then within those products, you have multiple tasks and maybe multiple subtasks or projects in that product are equally important. And when, you know, there's several product owners who are all kind of vying for your attention and, you know, your time and, uh, they all have different priorities. You know, the, the dilemma, I guess I can call it a dilemma. The dilemma that I'm seeing uh, is that, you know, if you if you push the responsibility to set the priorities too far downstream to the developers or to the team, they're like, yeah, but we don't know which product is more important right now or which project is more important. But then, you know, if you, if the developers push it or the team pushes it back to the product owners and say, okay, you guys decide. And then they try to decide and then it comes down, you know, so that's like, okay, we'll work on this. And then you still get a request to another product owner. So I think there's um, maybe dilemma is a slightly negative term. I think it's a very fine balancing act. Mm -hmm. Like when, especially when you're dealing with multiple products. Yeah, yeah, I, I could only agree with that. Be, I have been, Having been both a, a head of R&D, uh, being a product manager and head of product management, you definitely see the complexity in prioritization, right? Because you have rarely only one stakeholder. 
uh, most often they're multiple stakeholders and you have different stakeholders that work on different time horizons. So, I mean, there are stakeholders who think that the daily operations is the most important. If, if something is broken, you must fix that. And then you have other stakeholders who work on a slightly longer time horizon who think that this new product release is the most important because we have maybe even bought advertisement space in TV for like millions. And if if we if we miss that window, what will, what can we do? So so for them, obviously that's most important. And then you have, if you will, more a CTO kind of office who finds it most important that whatever is built is built in such a way that it can be reusable in the next product we haven't even invented yet, but there will be a next product and we want what we're investing in right now to fit into that. So you have like a daily operations dimension, a mid to long-term product dimension, and you have a, if you will, technology dimension, which is more about the infrastructure, making sure that the investments we do in infrastructure is reusable going forward. And sometimes there's a naive uh, idea or a, a naive ambition that a product manager should be able to consolidate all of this into one structured priority list that is always just maintained and that you always have one clear priority and in practice it's it, it is not that simple uh, so you need to accept that there will be different things who are actually prioritized at the same time. And you need to find a way to kind of balance doing, doing that in a clever way. Uh, I mean, they know that that's how the body works. I mean, I mean, what's most important that the heart beats or that you breathe? Uh, you need to do both, uh, right? And, and if you stop doing one of the things, uh, you will soon die. Uh, so, so you need to be able to maintain different priority lists in a clever way and that's i think that's the complexity of running software development in general that yeah. especially if you add on to the kind of the SaaS dimension that, that you're offering something as a SaaS service because then you have a clear operational dimension as well and and trust me this this is a constant headache <laughs> if you are uh, responsible for product management or or, or, uh, or something because you always have different stakeholders who think that you have done the prioritization in the wrong way. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah but yeah, that's, that, that's how it goes, right? It's a situation yeah. of depending on who's, uh, what stakeholder you've talked to, that is the priority. And uh, none of them will ever agree that the other stakeholder's priority is kind of, the other stakeholder has a higher priority than theirs. It's like, it's always my product has the higher priority. And if you add this on to a team that has multiple disciplines, uh, then you deal with a situation of there might be internal internal priorities raised as well, which just further complicates things as well, mm -hmm. because it will always be the situation of the team wants to prioritize what they have internally uh, because that is perceived as a bigger problem because that's that's like yes. right on their door, doorstep. So then that just increases the complexity for the product manager because now there's internal uh, internal management to do as well. I mean, it's part of uh, it's part of what 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 kind of happens in the teams as well, but just adding this cross-functional layer where it's not just software development, it's this as well or that as well, just adds that that extra dimension uh, that you have to consider. It's not just external stakeholders; it's internal as well. Yes, yes, because we like like I said, I have three teams that I kind of work with three 
engineering teams, which also do operational stuff because their infrastructure, you know, so they have to solve incidents, but they also have to create stuff and be part of um, projects and whatnot. And we have a, 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 a million um, stakeholder. And like I said, I have an impossible role to prioritize all this. Um, but like my boss tells me, um, uh, the director of infrastructure, he tells me like, and he's right. It, it, one of the most important things is like um, to have good relationships, to try to um, check on people that you know we need to work with, I don't know, procurement, finance, whatever. You know, um, yeah, bribe them with chocolate or whatever. Um, have good relationships. Um, also consider the needs for real. <laughs> you know, like if there is a reason why, for example, they are doing, I don't know, monthly accounting. So they need certain procurement to be done or budgeting to be done, as a, as a, even though it's a pain in um, a lot of places. Um, that little investment will reap the reward because, you know, you, you are showing them also that you are willing to play also part of that game. So it kind of it creates this kind of give and take situation. I think that's also a big thing. There's also the stakeholder management plays a yep. huge role. I mean, there's a lot of times where if you go to certain, I mean, you you learn you learn to which stakeholders you can talk to about these things. Like, you know, which stakeholders will will you can approach and say, look, we've had this problem. We can we push this back? But uh, if you don't have that communication and you just rely on, they say, okay, it needs to be done the second of February, and you see you're going to run over and you don't communicate that the second of february comes like they're not going to automatically know look we've run over so yeah sometimes bribing with chocolate works but other times just good communication i think is is definitely key i definitely know which one i would prefer um it is white chocolate thank you werner if you're going to buy some <laughs> Um, but have we got any other final thoughts on that question? No, lovely. Um, well, Werner, it is your question next. And you asked, how do you match the different way your engineers and other members work on? For example, Scrum and Sprints work great for engineers, but not for designers and service people like content editors. Um, so tell us a bit more about your question. Yeah. So obviously we, we deal a lot with, with on the website and we deal with that from a infrastructure point of view, kind of delivering uh, delivering infrastructure as code, doing the code that actually kind of renders these things out. And we've got the content editors in, in there as well, which is, they're kind of providing that, providing or, or assisting people to bring those things on onto uh, kind of the infrastructure as well. And we've got some service delivery people that also kind of look at everything that comes in and make sure that those things are prioritized. So these all work in, in very different ways, but still in the same type of team. And when working with developers, I mean, having a two-week two week sprint is absolutely brilliant because you, you in, end up focusing on these things and, and knowing at the end of the sprint, we'll have these delivered. Or, well, mostly, let's say about 95% of these things done. But when you come to service delivery and content, content they are mostly driven from from external sources so it's a situation of you always have this battle of everybody is supposed to work together but you have kind of these disjointed uh, disjointed flows that, that you have so combining those together always proved proved uh, proved a nightmare what we did on our side we ended up in a hybrid between kanban and scrum and that worked for us but it ends up you plan with, for your development anyway like it would have been a sprint but you don't run it like that because otherwise you are excluding the other other teams kind of input and if it was a situation of we were to run it 
strictly scrum. I mean, we would never finish a sprint because there will always be these extra tickets that that will fall over because they came in that morning and it is content or it is service requests that need, need to be attended. And it becomes frustrating at some point if you're running this completely completely as an as an engineering thing because then you never finish a print a sprint and even though your your team understands these things it is demotivating to kind of set a goal and not kind of achieve it 100% uh, percent and not achieving it 100% constantly i think has a a huge mental problem we're not finishing something it's not like we're taking the ticket and it's done. We're not taking the sprint and it's done. So I'm just interested to, to kind of hear how, how you solve these things in, in a kind of a cross-functional team on your side. Uh, it's a tough one. Um, first of all, here we try to let teams self-organize and yeah. bets in, uh, which I think is overall, it's a good idea. Um, as long as you kind of interact, uh, you agree or standardize interfaces or some things which are shared like incident management. So we all use the same system, ticketing system for incidents, no matter what team you are. Um, however, uh, like in infrastructure, most of the engineers have to react quickly to incidents. So that's, um, it cannot work in sprints, of course, because that's reactive. But we're also telling them to develop infrastructure as code, like you said, but they're not really developers, are they? Um, however, we kind of try, we are trying to kind of have a combination, like you said. So we're saying like, okay, for let's say that um, we have enough capacity. So we have like a couple of people that are on rotation are using the mindset of reactivity. So they're using a particular approach and they're looking at the tickets, which are more reactive. And then there would be work streams. And the work streams would be, for example, a continuous improvement to uh, productify something which was a bit more reactive and that would use a more development approach, but not fully. Um, so we would have the backlog with the tasks assigned per people, maybe not necessarily in sprints, but still not looking too far ahead, it's still iterative. Um, and then for others which are longer term, because again, infrastructure, if you're planning to do a data center, for example, you're not really gonna do sprints, you know mm. it's massive investment and for a long term so that that really long term we use project management then mm. um or a, an actual project so i i see these three kind of streams how to kind of uh, mix th things up yeah i think the one key thing that you that you kind of touched on there is the self-organization as well because that that is something that that really helps a lot and i mean it, it eases it eases the burden of the project manager when when they start to self-organize as well. But that being said, I've only found that that those type of things start happening in when we get to kind of a high-performing team. Then that self-organization happens by default. Whereas, uh, I mean, if you get the four stages of the team: the forming, storming, norming, performing. If you if you look at those type of things. The first three phases, that self-organization, it's maybe not there at, at that stage. And at that stage, you still need to kind of manage these these uh, these areas for them in order to make sure that they get to the point where, okay, they're now hard performing, now they can self-organize, and now they can carry on as well. So self-organization, yeah. definitely 100% agree on that. Yeah. Overall, you need some level of guardrails anyway. It's the level maybe of intrusion or rather how much you kind of um, 
hold their hands or otherwise. Yeah. yeah. Um, one way that I've seen this solved uh, at a company I worked at was where they they really stuck to Scrum. You know, they really did it by the book. But then, even if if let's say the designers were working on stuff, and you know, designers might work on it on a more iterative cycle, maybe even more than developers, and they might it might be like it might you know go over two weeks or however long your sprint is. That I remember that you know we would we would document and say okay you know we we're done with this ticket we're done with the sprint um but this design function this design task is still running it's sort of like a background process in a way um and what i liked about that way is that it 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 um it accepted the reality of how a designer works and how a developer works um and it didn't try to force two different types of people to like conform to each other you know um the, the only downside with that was that even though we kind of allow for the freedom is that after a while, it was really hard to get a real sense of how done are we with this thing that's running in the background rather than something that's more finite. Because, you know, I mean, I, I also, as a developer, you know, I, I guess it's like a myth that some developers have, but you know, like we, you start something and you finish it and then it's done because nothing is ever really, really done. Even if you close it, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I might be divulging, you know, secrets here, but you know, sometimes some things, even though they're done, like it's done in this version or in this, in this, you know, state, but it, it might change or it comes up later as a different bug or it becomes a bug in a different way for another thing. So, I, I think, um, I think the, the, the best ways I've seen this done is where, because I've also seen, I, I've also been at places where you try to force people, like you really put like a, you know, you kind of, you force people to conform to a certain way. And then when, when things are working, not working out, you go, yeah, but why aren't you finishing stuff? You're like, well, you know because I'm not, and you know, this thing just cannot be finished in a two week sprint, you know? So I, I think, um, yeah, what I've seen to be successful is when, to take on to Noah's point, which is where you let team self-organize, but also like, I think what was inherent in Werner's question was that you have to accept that people are like, the different functions on teams are different. They're not, they don't operate the same way, don't work the same way. You know their their development cycles are different. I'm gonna touch also on, on what you said. Done the definition of done. I mean this applies to everything. Never is it really done until you stop and deploy it. Um, this applies to music, art, mm-hmm. a, a book. You sh- it, it it's never done. You can keep on writing manuscripts and drafts and drafts and drafts. So uh, full stop. Take it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's. But the thing is, what is done in your head and what is done in my head it is probably totally different. So you need that someone, the director of the orchestra, or someone that says, okay, we're done. Or at least a common understanding on, again, what success looks. Again, success does not mean the perfect, because perfect does not exist. It's a definition. It's okay um, if I can drink from this. It's very simple. Then maybe next iteration, it's okay if I can change color by pressing a button, whatever. Um, It's still a mug. Um, you know, so I think that's that's quite crucial, especially because cross-functional teams imply 
different mindsets imply different levels of abstraction, different level of tools that they use, different things that they care about. So, yeah. My my concern about these things is always kind of the perception that it gives, right? Because engineers think differently, designers think differently, service uh, service people think differently. And for me, the danger with, like Mina said, where, where you let the, the sprints conform or let items in the sprint kind of run as background tasks, at some point in time, you get this little junior developer maybe sitting there saying, yeah, but the designer never finishes finishes this. So what if my tickets start falling over? Then it should be fine, right? So it's not the situation that they that they differentiate with that. So I think that comes with, with seniority at, at realizing that. But when you've got people on, on just starting out, I mean, this looks then like a norm. So it's it's like, well if it's okay for these people, then it's all right for me as a developer, not realizing the intricacies behind them. So that is always for me, the, kind of the question around it is like the perception, because try as we may, I mean, we don't always understand the reasoning behind people's thought processes. So it's always, always kind of the optics that we have that, that, that we can control and not necessarily what people think of them. So for me, that that's the key. Well, that's the key thing that we, that we've done is just make the optics look right, so that it is understood across team, kind of where where people's uh, priorities are, what where they start, where they end, and where what role the planning plays in this. Yeah. Now, from personally, it's been a few years since I since I kind of engaged uh, in in how we were working and so on. So I don't have the, the latest and greatest, but I, a couple of reflections. First, I think that uh, some of you guys already said that there's, there has, when Scrum and Agile and so on was introduced, a lot of people got this illusion of that everything could work in this way and actually cannot. So the last years, last couple of years, I think we're sobered up a little bit. People have understood that all processes can't be agile. You can't, Just because you want to use agile or scrum in your R&D, you can't tell the legal guys that write the legal an, an, an agile agreement and then we can like rewrite it to every second week. No, it doesn't work that way. You would never get the contract signed if you said that we're gonna do. We're gonna revisit this every second week. It, it doesn't work that way. So there's a lot of lot of processes in the world that we need to relate to that is not possible to do in an agile or scrum way. So that's the first thing that you need to you you need to kind of realize that you you can't have as an ambition that everything should be agile. Uh, another thing, a couple of you guys I think used the word solve. I don't even think there's a solution. I think. There is a current best implementation, but it's not quite a solution. I mean, th there will never be a way to get all different kind of disciplines aligned in one way of working that's, that works for everyone. Because in the end of the day, you have different functions that have to relate to different realities, and those realities are different. So it's kind of... In, when you, especially when you hire, hire like young engineers, so you send off some engineer to some kind of training and they get back and they have this new vision of how everything should be done. Very important is to explain that the reality is never as easy as these textbook examples. 
and everything is a compromise uh, and you just need to find and I think Sarah, you mentioned the world optics it's all about coming up with the compromises that makes different disciplines work not perfectly because they will never work perfectly but good enough and so on and, and then get going with that and and personally I, I mean quite lately I've appreciated a much more constructive dialogue with like development organizations that they understand that actually some of the requirement interfaces won't be able to cope with scrum or agile because the reality simply is not yeah. that way i mean winter is coming whether we like it or not we can't postpone that so yeah. or, or christmas is eve is coming at the date we, we can't postpone that and so there's a lot of stuff that you just need to relate to as fixed and static and some things can be changed some things cannot and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, that's yeah that, that's a uh, never-ending discussion how to make these different kind of processes fit together but i think uh, for a while at least in the organizations i have been there's been a somewhat naive idea mm -hmm. that we can make everything scrum and agile and that has changed at least the last couple of years to more kind of wider understanding that as a matter of fact it didn't work uh, so but it's it's uh yeah this is one of the most complicated things in in like uh how to organize uh companies and so on when you have different realities uh, that you need to optimize for and i think it's also one of those things where people kind of miss the idea about agile right mm -hmm. They try and they they try and bring agile in as this this highly set standard, and they don't adapt it to their their environment, and so they're not they want they want a recipe to solve it, which is which just doesn't necessarily exist. Embrace the chaos. Yeah, <laughs> as much as much as we would like to uh, you know control, control it, it. it. It's one of those things like you just have to at some point in time you have to just say okay well this is just the reality we have to embrace it yep deal with the outcome rather than try and manage manage the kind of inputs yep nice lovely any other final thoughts on that question no, fantastic we'll move on to the last one then um last not but last but not least johan it is your question um where you asked how do you get cross-functional teams to work at scale so if you have uh, several different products, sharing much of the technical platforms and having to align with common commercial and communication frameworks, et cetera. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, no, and this is also part of this uh, uh, last 10 years uh, uh, kind of an ambitions to redefine uh, teams and how they work and so on. And I think many companies have, this is moving forth and back, that you try to kind of, you push as an example, you put product management and so on closer to the R&D teams in order to, because then you simplify the interfaces between R&D and the product manager and R&D guys loves that because they have easy access to priorities and, and business needs and so on. Downside of that is that the product manager gets further away from sales and further away from marketing. And they also, if you put product management close to the R&D teams, you lose the portfolio view because if you have the product managers being close to each other, you can keep a portfolio tight so it fits together. But if you put them too close to the development, you kind of lose that dimension and so on. So it's a never ending dilemma that you need to decide 
how to do things. And for a really small company, this is not very difficult because maybe you have only one product. But the bigger the company they get, and the more products you have, the more complicated this becomes. Uh, yeah. Because uh, and and this is something we have struggled with, uh, or struggle. Yeah, we have struggled with it, and and we have tried also back to these different phases, right? So you, it's very easy for an organization to think that when you start up something new, you think, ah, let's put together a isolated team that includes everything you need to get this product built and launched on the market. That's yeah. true. That's very good in the beginning. But at some time, you're going to need to, to make that product really successful. You need to integrate it in the bigger machinery. So you get the full leverage of the entire marketing capacity. You get the full leverage of a wider sales organization. And also, you can scale up the development in such a way that you can utilize common infrastructure and so on, rather than building everything isolated and so on as a startup. And that's also very difficult because if you started up building that early because it's the easiest way to take something to the market, you get a very complicated integration exercise later and so on. So, so it's it's this is another kind of, I mean, next to the processes and so on dilemma. How do you actually where do you put different competences and how much how much do you want the team to be if you will self-sustained versus how much don't you want them to be self-sustained because self, what is clever in self-sustaining at an early phase becomes a problem later and uh, if this is another thing that i i think is not solvable this is only about best practices so this is kind of if you guys have any experiences or or, or, or clever ideas how to balance these uh, that would be fantastic ah uh, it's such a difficult question again when I transitioned from a service manager to a product manager, um, I carried a lot of what I knew and I thought I knew. Therefore, the way my definition of product manager is my definition. Um, however, I can because I'm closer to the teams, I end up doing things like supplier management a lot, um, contract management, um, uh, like trying to bridge with the architects to kind of find a good solution. But like you said, then I find myself um, a bit missing in, in things like um, getting good visualizations for other stakeholders. Um, how does that, what am I, am I doing kind of to translate it into kind of um, from a cost center perspective maybe, or from a, how does it relate from a commercialization, even though it's an internal product. So it, it gets that level, it, it kind of, I'm not sure, honestly where it is the right place um, what i know is that if you put somewhere whatever they put them then that's their focus and that's their they're gonna have a proximity me, me included so yes i do have an appreciation for commercial blah 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 but ultimately if you put me close to the engineers it's kind of my natural kind of inclination to towards uh, move towards an engineering kind of mindset if you know what I mean, while not doing the technical stuff. So it's quite it's quite a challenge, I have to say, um, especially at scale, um, because our teams offer services internally. So, yeah, it's it's quite challenging. Maybe someone has a magic um, wand. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I wish I had that that magic wand, but it is also one of the uh, one of those difficult situations, right? And in, in software engineering, one of the one of the 
the big things that that came out was these micro and then nano services where things were broken down and that reusability was brought up as well and that helped kind of scale the the software engineering side and make sure that there's that reusability but scaling on this kind of uh, scaling on this type of level i don't think that there's a good solution for this because like you said where you place somebody, that will be their focus. It will, will, won't shift from that. And as much as we would like to say, well, let's let's break this out. They follow us a kind of a, a engineering type of view view for this and break these out into two kind of small clusters. It's like there's always that bias that enter, enters into it, no matter where you go. So even if you've got the small function, you'll start you'll start kind of caging those people in that function and that would be the only thing that they care about and they will stop considering the externals at some uh, at externals at some point so the only way that i i can even think of this happening is rotating these people to just make sure that that mindset never comes like in sits in and becomes locked in place but that that amount of change in a a person's working environment adds other complexities onto that so it, yeah. it's not it, it it's difficult to to tell people oh, look you're going to i mean who of us wants to go to a job interview and say okay look you're going to context switch at least uh four times a month um so it's a weekly rotation so you will never have like a fixed thing to work on i mean it's it, Although that would be kind of the perfect solution to make sure that people always consider all aspects, it's just not how people work. There is something which maybe is doable, which is not so extreme, because I agree with you, that level of context switching is insane. But um, let's say that you have like in a, in a micro environment, you'd have like, because this happens even can happen in a small environment, mm -hmm. if you are all the time in survival mode, so to speak. Um, not in planning mode, but you cannot always be in planning mode or in survival mode. So let's say in a small scale, Monday is planning, Tuesday is survival, Wednesday is survival, Thursday is planning, Friday survival or Friday's party um, and scale it up. So um, on, on um, I don't know, first day of the month, we have a strategic meeting with higher level people. On, uh, I don't know, se second week, we'll speak a bit with commercial. Or, or procurement let's let because maybe at that time you get an insight a spark you get you out of that kind of comfort zone of the rest of the day mm. because unfortunately to break comfort zone you need to be really uncomfortable or else you're just gonna stay where you are um i, I don't know it's just a compromise that we try to do it doesn't always work because these things get to not sometimes uh, they don't happen but when it happens well these kind of focused meetings, which are not your day-to-day -day stuff, it gets you maybe to think in a different mindset and and maybe listen to other people. And you know, it's a kind of a bit of a compromise, I guess. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways that we we've done these type of uh, type of things, and and this break bringing it down to kind of a a more more team-based scale is we've we've got once a month these research days which kind of force people to get out of their their comfort zone think of something different so that it's not a situation of you know that that they're constantly just in their in that kind of project mode that they're in to force them to at least for one day one day a month break out of uh, break out of those things so i think that's definitely insightful and and scaling or putting that in a meeting perspective where you've got people involved and they are giving their insight, I think that 
that would be a brilliant way to kind of break that comfort zone and force people to kind of think just that little few degrees difference. This was a really great question. And um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I want, I want to come up with something uh, honest that's not like a bunch of, you know, like drivel, because <laughs> it's really difficult sometimes when it's a really good question. I, I, I think that. I think maybe I'll like, I don't remember who said it. I think it might've been uh, Johan who said in the very beginning about honesty, about team being honest. I think in order to, to start to scale and doing these things at a scale, I think a team has to be really, really tight. Um, and not necessarily like tight as in, you know, everybody's best friends with each other and, you know, but that in as terms of a working team, that they know how to work with each other, that they're kind of flexible and also, you know, we're able to kind of weather storms and weather conflicts, because as you start to increase the pressure and the complexity and the tasks and the number of products, and, you know, that that team needs to be able to, to deal with that in a, in a, you know, productive way. I was going to say, just to be completely transparent, I was going to say initially, you know, you'd, you'd need to have a core team that's really tight and that you could build on, but, you know, life is a bit more transient now and people come and go and teams sometimes, even if somebody's part of a core team, you know, they get a really great opportunity and they go somewhere else. So I think to, to rely on this thing that, you know, you have a core team of people who would always be there, perhaps it's not very realistic, but I think if the, the team culture, so maybe like the, you know, these kind of, I don't know, these ethereal things out here called team culture and values, if they're kind of solid, uh, then it doesn't really matter who comes in and leaves because of the way the team is or the, what the values that the team has might keep that going. And I think mm -hmm. then as you increase the complexity or you increase the number of products or the tasks, um, you're able to scale. Um, there is this thing. I, I remember when I started as a manager um, some time ago, um, I was panicking. I was having a bit of anxiety because we were trying to deal with little amount of people, big projects and um, the team leader that was reporting to me turned around and told me you're not alone and smiled mm -hmm. and I keep yeah. remembering this uh, the smile and you're not alone so kind of a bit of fun in the sense of like you know take it down a notch relax but support um, wow. I, I feel this so so important and that's the part of the honesty you know if you so if you cut that honesty what I'm talking about is that you don't feel that you are going to be um, witch hunted or whatever, that you can lean on something. Sometimes, you, yes, sometimes, sometimes I'm tired. Sometimes I'm anxious. Sometimes I'm scared. It's OK to say it or maybe say it differently, mm -hmm. say it the way you want to say it. Point being or don't point being that you can always find support. And sometimes I mean, sometimes we have me, uh, daily meetings to go through incidents. And the last part of this meeting is about a fun fact that happened in history on the day. Yeah. And everyone loves it. You end up in a, in, in a, in a good, good, good vibe yeah. in a smile. So I think that will and for scale when things start because you have less control, more chaos. Yes, embrace it, but also embrace that kind of um, human side of being social, being want to help others. And that will help scale, I feel. The one thing and I think this is the only thing I can still add here maybe is the one thing that that we've really tried to do, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, is kind of this blameless culture. Because as you scale up, things go wrong, and sometimes it's human error. And 
instead of spending hours looking for something, if somebody just goes, look, it's me, and they know there's not there's not those repercussions that come uh, yes. come after that, that helps immensely at making sure yes. things stay running. And that is sometimes I think feel really hard because we always, as, as humans, fear this the backlash that's going to come, right? It's like, I've done something or I, something I've developed has caused this, so I'm scared of the backlash that's going to be there. So implementing that trust, implementing that, uh, that kind of blameless culture, I think is something that is also just key at making sure things can scale and run at that, at yep. that kind of level. Well, we'll leave it there. Um, This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Werner, Noel, Johan and Mina for providing your thoughts into the topic. And thank you to the listeners for listening as well. If you would like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at abby.stokes at evolution-nordics.com. See you next time.